Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Austin. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Hanami talking about suicide awareness as well as their upcoming conference, which includes the event Off the Mask about taking off mental health stigmas. Then, Lukey Forbes talks about the upcoming Choi for Clean Slate Town Hall and what the Clean Slate Act is. Later on, we hear about how marriage risk disability support from the perspective of a local resident. After that, theater director Jay Stoll talks about the upcoming music event from Salon Sands named The End of Time. Finally, Lee Strimbeck tells us about intimacy choreography, a recent addition to many theater spaces. But first, here are the headlines. New York State's Board of Elections is investigating whether the campaign of Republican Lee Zeldin, the Uh, Republican nominee for governor violated state law by coordinating with a pair of super PACs supporting his candidacy. However, the two Republican members of the board declined to show up to vote on whether or not to grant subpoena powers to the lead investigator, stalling the investigation until after the election is over. Many Republican County Board of Election Commissioners also decided to ignore a court order to resume counting of absentee ballots, though there are indications that they may reverse their refusal. The Albany Common Council unanimously approved the appointment of former Judge Gary Stiegelmeyer as the city's public safety commissioner, clearing the way for the transformation of how the city handles the displace, handles the disciplining of police officers. While the department's Office of Professional Standards will continue to handle handle that investigation of police misconduct, if an officer appeals the discipline the police chief deems necessary, then Stiegelmeyer will hold a hearing and issue the final ruling. The city of Newburgh is considering allowing the citizen-led police oversight board to be able to subpoena information and witnesses, including officers, when probing a complaint. Voters in Albany approved such powers in a referendum last year. The New York Civil Liberties Union has had subpoena power is required to oversight boards to effectively investigate complaints and enforce accountability. The Times Union reports that investigators for the University of Albany Police Department are making progress in their probe of a man who placed anti-Semitic and racist stickers on the SUNY Albany campus earlier this week. He then called the media to draw attention to the incident, posing as a student. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or... Call 518-272-2390. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They've been on the show before, and now they remind us of suicide awareness, and they have a conference coming up. 
Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Matthew Shapiro and Amanda McDowell. It's been a while since we've had you on our show. NAMI is doing such incredible work. September was Suicide Awareness Month. This is a year-round issue. So what were some of the activities that you were doing in September, and how do we continue to keep the awareness out there? Well, you made the most important point. I mean, again, we don't want to limit the conversations around suicide and the importance of suicide prevention to one month. It's obviously a 365-day-a-year job. Um, You know, what we did uh, in in September as NAMI New York State, again, we always want to normalize the conversation on suicide and suicide prevention. I think it's a, a conversation people are very reluctant to engage in, especially when dealing with younger people or, or, or kids or students that they feel like they're going to enter the conversation in a wrong way or inappropriately or maybe put ideas in people's heads. And we know that's not true. I mean, it's a lot like the way we talk about sex education. I think people have that notion. If we talk about sex education, it's going to encourage people to have sex. Well, we know that's not the case. They're doing it anyway. And the same thing with suicidality. Unfortunately, there are people that struggle with this pain that they think that suicide is the only way out. Whether we talk about it or not, that's still going to be happening. So we really have to take it upon ourselves to be uh, the best friends, neighbors, and family members possible and support people who might be struggling, especially with all the mental health challenges that people have been facing over the last couple of years. I think you're right in that there's a lot of fear in how to react. If somebody does find out that the loved one, somebody that they know, is thinking about suicide, what is a reaction that you could suggest? Yeah, no, that's such a great question, such an important question. And and the most important thing I can say is you never take any talk of suicide or or mention of suicide lightly or or take as someone is just uh, faking it or something. Every mention of suicide has to be taken seriously. Um, You know, yeah, let that person know that they're loved and they're supported and you're willing to work with them get them help. Um, you know, NAMI has programs like Family to Family that, that educates family members on how to care for someone who has a serious mental illness, especially someone who could be suicidal. Um, you know, our colleagues at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention have many programs too to help both family members who have maybe experienced a, a, a loss via suicide, people who have a loved one who is thinking about suicide, or for the individual themselves. So the most important thing is to let that person, you know, take the threat seriously, let that person know that you're concerned about them and you love them and that you're going to work with them to get them help, that they're not in this alone and they're not, you know, and maybe, you know, someone like Amanda or I, or you might not understand the pain they're experiencing, but we're here to support them and, and get them through this very difficult challenge that they're experiencing. Thank you for that, Matthew. And another thing that NAMI is working on, there's a really exciting conference coming up, Education Conference, Empowering Each Other to Achieve Wellness and Recovery. What exactly is going to be delved into at this conference? All right. We're very excited about this year's conference. It's the first time in a couple of years that we'll be doing it in person at the Albany Marriott on Wolf Road. And uh, yeah, we have such an exciting agenda. Uh, Two of the highlights that uh, I'm just so excited about, we have uh, Dr. Ken Duckworth, who's the medical director of NAMI, but he's also the author of the new book, You Are Not Alone, 
which features both individuals and family members who have experienced mental illness and, and are facing this and, and, you know, navigating the road to recovery. So he profiles these stories and lets people know they're not alone. And we'll have not just Dr. Duckworth, but uh, two of the people that are featured in the book as well. So we're very excited about that. And then on Saturday morning, we have Dr. Tom Insel, who's the former director of the National uh, Institute of Mental Health, who just wrote an incredible new book, Healing Our Road from Mental Illness to Mental Wellness, where really he argues of how we need to make a social justice movement around mental health and that, you know, the consequences that have happened from not having enough mental health services really are social justice issues when we see overrepresentation of people in jails and prisons, the homeless numbers, the suicide numbers. Obviously, that's something that's very concerning, and those are social justice issues. So to look at it um, on that perspective is so helpful. Um, you know, speaking of suicide, we have a lot of uh, sessions on suicide prevention, our, our zero suicide focus, including our uh, 2022 Research Award winner, Dr. Matthew Hopman from the Nathan Klein Institute, who all of his research is on impulse control and suicidality. So we're really excited about that. And I'm going to end it off to Amanda because we have our Off the Mask event too that we're going to be talking about. And, and uh, as part of the event, we are going to be giving our storyteller award to uh, Joe Mealy and his family, who's a, a family here in Troy who lost their son to suicide. And every year they do uh, the Dustin Mealy Memorial Concert at Revolution Hall and done such an incredible job in the capital region of raising awareness and uh, both mental health and suicide. So we're very excited to honor them and, and again, show the importance of discussing suicide awareness. And Amanda, did you want to talk about other elements of Off the Mask? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're really excited about this entire weekend, um, November 11th and 12th. Um, uh, and I'll, it's all about connection for us. Um, it's It's a homecoming. We get to meet in person again, you know, for the first time since the pandemic and with the conference, um, we get folks um, from all across the state, mental health professionals, peers, our affiliates, um, and as well, uh, we have our uh, yearly fundraising gala, but it's it's more than a, a fundraiser. It's, uh, it's called Off the Mask, um, and the centerpiece is a fashion show where uh, we have about 25 models with a strong connection to mental health that they they walk the runway um, initially wearing masquerade masks and then they uh, take them off. And that is just a metaphor for um, the stigma that we all face with mental health that we're often forced to mask our mental health and not be able to have those conversations. Um, we also have a silent auction, an art show, a dinner. Um, and one thing that's really important to us um, is um, to share stories and to talk about just the diversity of experience. And I think especially this year, we've got a very diverse um, group of models just and it cuts across like all spectrums. So we've got across age, we've got younger folks and older folks. We've got um, people of color. We've got people um, from the queer community, um, folks from, from all across the state, you know, people that are mental health professionals, people that have mental illness themselves, people that have loved ones with mental illness. And it's a celebration really, and a coming together um, to 
uh, really connect um, and talk about talk about our stories, share our victories, share our challenges. Um, and we would love to have you all there. <laughs> then people can find out more information about the event by visiting our website, www.namiNYS.org, and then forward slash off the mask. And, and NAMI uh, is spelled N-A-M-I. Correct. Thank yeah. you. So before we started recording, I'd ask about the masking and you told me that it actually began before COVID. And so the, it's a masquerade mask, which is Correct. a little bit different, Correct. really focusing on taking away stigma. Um, and so in our last minute, what else should we know about the work that you're doing at the moment? Well, I, I think what's most important for people to know about NAMI is that Again, there are not enough mental health programs to go around or, or services to go around, and we're really a safety net. Everything that we offer, all of our education programs, all of our support programs are offered at no cost to members of the public. Um, so we were able to provide mental health education support absolutely free from people with lived experience, whether they're people like uh, Amanda or I who have lived with a mental health issue, or Amanda and I both also are caregivers for people who live with a mental illness. So again, you're going to learn from people with lived experience, people who have walked the walk and, and know what it means to be in that position that you're in now. And just that you know that support's out there and that NAMI is out there with help, hope, and healing. Mm, thank you so much. Community is, is and resources are such an important part of moving forward. And Amanda and Matthew, it's been a pleasure to have you on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having thank us you so back. We will have NAMI on again to talk about the social justice movement around the mental health that they mentioned. Next up, Lukey Forbes spoke with Dulcinea Diggs about the Clean Slate Act and the upcoming Troy for Clean Slate Town Hall. Today we are speaking with Lukey Forbes. Lukey Forbes is a community activist, leader, and an entrepreneur. Today, Lukey is here to give us a recap on Clean Slate. Please welcome my guest, Mr. Forbes. How you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm here to speak on Clean Slate. So, Lukey. How is the fight for Clean Slate going in Troy? The reasoning why they are reluctant to is because of the belief that the actual state bill will pass next year. So it's really kind of like because you believe that the bill is going to pass next year, you don't want to sign the resolution. It kind of really defeats the purpose. Now, the point of us going around doing this moral tour is simply that, getting the different municipalities to agree and moral that clean slate is needed and to apply that um, the actual pressure to our state assembly and Senate. Right now, Troy's representative, John McDonald, isn't signed on. And he has the, um, he's one of those people who actually listens to his municipalities as well as his constituents. And there's a large amount of people in Troy that not only will benefit from Clean Slate, but have been calling from Clean Slate since the beginning of the introduction of the bill. Mm, okay, so... You mentioned that you guys are on tour. I'm to assume that means you, um, you know, I follow you on social media. So you've been <laughs> going to Washington, D.C., you know, talk about it. So, yeah, um, Clean Slate is, is definitely something that we've been traveling across the state of New York about. Now, my trip to Washington, D.C. was for a different, um, however, the more, um, the moral tour that I'm referring to is, 
how we've been traveling across the state to different municipalities. Last month, we had got Newburgh, Poughkeepsie, and Ellingsville to pass resolutions. This month, we've just got Columbia County to agree to pass a resolution, a, a proclamation for us. They're going to be submitting a proclamation in the, the county of Columbia. That was actually a proclamation coming out of the Public Safety Committee as well. So it was like really a good victory there. And just seeing the moral of Columbia's County Public Safety and ruling for this proclamation um, through the county is really, is really interesting and really cool. Also, we have a resolution coming up in Beacon. We have one coming up in Saratoga and one coming up in Schenectady. So again, this is something that started last year and we got them passed in Albany, Hudson, New York, Buffalo. Uh, so tell me, what made you want to start this bill? You know, I know yourself, you have a, um, a certain past. So did would you say that impacted, you know, you wanting to start this bill? The day that I heard that Clean Slate existed um, really made me want to get involved. I'm someone who I, I have a case since I was 15 years old. That was when I got convicted. And this case that after serving seven years in prison, after completing my time off parole, um, I'm still I still had this case pop up on my criminal background. Mm -hmm. um, I remember trying to apply for jobs and I'll make it to the second interview and they will be ready to hire me. And as soon as that criminal background check came, it would just disqualify me immediately. Um, the same thing for trying to apply for housing, different licenses. Um, I've gotten into real estate at points of time um, and it really, I couldn't get into real estate how I wanted to because I can't get my real estate license because of a felony. And again, I was convicted at the age of 15 years old I was denied my youth offender status. So the only way for me to honestly be able to benefit from stealing is if Clean Slate is passed because other forms of stealing that currently do exist, I don't meet the criteria like most of New Yorkers don't meet the criteria. Um, legitimately like 1% of the people that have criminal backgrounds may fit the criteria to be able to um, benefit from the current ceiling. Don't quote me on the exact number, but it really is that low. And um, we really need more, especially when a criminal background excludes people from access to housing, education, and employment. And again, the things that I just stated that was my personal barriers were those. And that not only um, like affects the recidivism rate, but it also affects the overall crime rate. So it's important that we're not limiting people's access to these resources, especially years after the crime was committed remains. So yeah, um, my own personal case, my own personal dealing with this has gotten me involved. And it's really to not only help myself, but also the generational effects that this has. Because when a person is excluded from access to these resources, so are their children. That's why a child born in poverty remains in poverty. A child born with a parent with a criminal background most likely develops one themselves. We have to break this system, um, this, this current cycle of just putting people back into the system. It's not the best way. It's not the way that works. Very well said. Um, very well said. I agree. Uh, so um, there are so many barriers that are put on people who, you know, may 
one mistake and are truly trying to change their lives. So I definitely agree with that there. So have you reached out to other leaders within the community, um, such as Deacon Jerry Ford um, and other community members, you know, Stephen Figueroa, you know, people that are heavily deep involved, you know, with the with helping out the youth and making sure like, you know, criminal activity goes down. Yes, um, I reached out to Deacon Ford to also try to get him involved. He has um, actually on one of the days where we were in the Common Council um, speaking about it, he was actually hit by a car on his way there. Mm -hmm. And that has actually um, kept him out of like attending certain events around it. But he is also someone who is heavily and supportive of it because he also has a criminal background himself. Mm -hmm. Steven Figueroa um, is the person who sponsored it. However, um, since sponsoring it, we're just we're hoping um, that he continues to keep this as an active part of his campaign and does not um, lose sight of his constituents who are who have criminal backgrounds, who support his campaign, who want him to really take their issues forward, especially like you said, there are a lot of there's a lot of violence going on in Troy right now. There's a lot of things going on in Troy right now that is this is generational. These are things that we can't ignore. And as we are actively trying to make sure that we are addressing it at this moment, Clean Slate can help us address it at the root. And all that we need is this resolution. So I'm hoping that he keeps this as a part of his campaign and at, that he continues to carry the voices of his constituents who have criminal backgrounds in the city of Troy who are trying to do all that they can to provide for themselves and their families and really just get back into society. Now, why don't you tell us about your event? You know, I know you have an event coming up. So our event is going to be a town hall. We're going to be at the Oakwood Community Center, which is at 313 10th Street, Troy, New York. Zip code is 12180. And that is being switched from our old location, which would have been at Troy School 2. But now we're at the Oakwood Community Center. It's going to be at 6 p.m. on November 1st. It's an hour discussion, so we end at 7 p.m. And on our panel, who we have um, speaking, we have Peter Cook with the New York State Council of Churches. We have Brian from Citizen Action. We have Sam Fine, who's an Albany County legislator, who actually helped um, pass the resolution, I'm sorry, the proclamation in Albany County last year. We also have Benjamin Roundtree, who's formerly incarcerated and an active community member in Troy. Wow. All right. Well, well, that is really good to hear. You know, I'm excited to see what you do with the Clean Slate um, Act and you know how you end up getting it passed around all these counties just the fact that you've been able to do it within a year you know um, <laughs> seriously all these all these counties are getting behind it and you know it's it's amazing to see the work that you do within the community so folks can always reach out to us um and you can email me at civil rights at HudsonCatscaleHousing.org if you want to learn more. That's civil.rights at HudsonCatscale.org. So HudsonCatscaleHousing.org. This was great. I thank you for coming on the show. You know, you're always welcomed at HMM. 
we appreciate you and all the work you've done within the community and the work you're going to continue to do. And just thank you so much. Do you have any final I, I appreciate you all. And it's not just me. There's a coalition of people that is involved and we're activating people across the state. So every time we get a new person, it's a new fighting body in this fight for progression and liberation of all people. So it's, it's, it's everyone and every person that even shares a post is contributing to each and every action that we do. So I appreciate everyone for joining us and I appreciate you for sharing our message and what we're doing. And thank you for always being there when we do want, when we do have a message to share. If you want to learn more about Clean Slate, we have more stories on our website. You can also visit www.cleanslateny.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Choi, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. And you can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Being on Disability Financial Assistance, or for short, SSI, has allowed Elena Cruz Allen to meet her most basic cost. But the financial help is at risk. If she decides to marry her fiancé, her monthly income would go down to less than $100 per month. Elena talks about the flaws in the system of disability assistance with Sina Bazila Hickey. My name is Elena Esther Cruz Allen. I go by the stage name Tria Love, and I'm a local musician and artist. And I've, I grew up in the area, so as you know, as Sina knows, because we both went to high school together. That's right. We went to Gilderland High School together. Yeah, we did. I just want to welcome you to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You have been on our show before talking about your release. Uh, your latest album was released when? Uh, it was May 14th, 2021. Wow. It's been over a year. Yeah. And how is the music scene over in Troy right now? I mean, since COVID, I've been a little bit far removed from the music scene. I mean, I came out as a musician pretty much in co during COVID. So that was like just very difficult because, you know, there, there weren't a lot of shows going on and I was just kind of like, you know, everybody was dealing with, you know, the, the psychological effects of COVID. And, mm. But you yeah. did have some happy news, which is, this is why <laughs> I brought you into the studio. I wanted to celebrate your engagement. Mm -hmm. you, this is a super happy time, but there has been a conflict in your life which dampens the celebration, mm -hmm. right? And yes. so what's, what's going on? And maybe just say hello to your fiancé. Hello, Orion. That's my fiancé. Yes, he's magical. Okay, so what, <laughs> why, what is the difficulty in deciding to get married? Well, um, for us, it's definitely a difficult issue because we're both on disability. Um, I've actually been on disability for over 10 years for mental health reasons. When we decided that we wanted to get married, we, we 
contacted a lawyer that was a friend of my mom's to talk about, you know, what happens to people who are on disability when they get married in terms of financial stuff. Um, so we spoke with her, and that's when I found out that if, if I were to marry him, my allotment of money, which now stands at around $841 a month, which is barely enough to survive with all the bills that I have to pay and everything like that. Um, I've been coming up short of money like every month since all the inflation started happening. And it's been really frustrating um, because I feel like, you know, I just can't afford to get coffee every morning if I if I need it, you know, stuff like just little things like that. Mm -hmm. So but yeah, so we talked to this lawyer and she told us that if we were to get married, he would keep his allotment of disability money. And mine as an SSI person, as opposed to SSDI, my allotment would be reduced to $91 a month. That would be what I would have to survive on. Wow. Could we take a quick side note to explain what does it SSI and SSDI stand for? Basically, the difference is if, if, if you're able to collect disability, it means you have a work history. So, um, like, for example, like Orion worked in um, psychology. He also worked as an EMT driver. The fact that he had a work history meant that he can get more money. And I don't, I mean, I have had plenty of jobs, actually. Some of them paid, some of them unpaid. But when I first went on SSI, I didn't have any sort of work history besides, like, working as a cashier at Indian Ladder for like a couple months or like, you know, just like little, like I worked in childcare. I worked at the YMCA for like two years, but for whatever reason, I didn't have enough work history to collect SSDI. So that's why I'm on SSI, which is less money. And I'm only allowed to have up to $2,000 in my bank account. I'm not allowed to save money. Um, I try, I, I'm very good with money. I, I'm really good at saving money, but I don't because I'm not allowed to. Have you been given any kind of explanation to why these limitations and, uh, regulations are in place? You know, I think I, I kind of get it because it's government money. It's essentially welfare. Like it's free money. I don't, that's, it's not true that I don't do anything because I actually work a lot, <laughs> I just don't get paid for the work that I do. Honestly, I think the fact of the matter is, is that when you can't fulfill the requirements of a certain type of job as a person, this is kind of what happens to you. I have friends who struggle with similar issues that I have, you know, like moving from job to job, like minimum wage, like having to work. And that's something that I never had to do because I was just always on the the government money, which in a way is lucky because, you know, I could kind of do whatever I wanted. But I think that as far as I'm, I'm thinking about like the Republican Party, for example, like the Republican Party doesn't like to give people handouts, doesn't wants people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, you know, get it together, get a job. And, you know, it's kind of like every man for themselves, right? And I understand that. 
Um, I understand that viewpoint, but I just don't think that it is practical given the nature of the kind of work that people are getting that is not conducive to happy people. <laughs> I just don't, I mean, that's just my personal opinion. Um, so that being said, I just feel like the government, while um, there are a lot of possibly well-intentioned policies in place that provide the, like, the bare bones of, of what, like, people need to survive on, and, and potentially not even that, given, given the current situation, but for all of the, the years that I was, have been on SSI, like, I've been able to get by. But what, what I really think the problem is, is that they, sh they can shove free money at you, but they don't give you help with training or like, like, for example, like I've always been a singer. I've always been an artist. I've always, you know, f been a person who has excelled in the arts and academically. I have a lot of education. Like I have two, two degrees and still can't find a job in the area. So they're expecting you to dig your way out of the need of financial assistance without any kind of answer in how to step out of it. Yes and no, because there there is support. There's Access VR, which it and there's like a ticket to work program. So there are programs in place. It's just people don't push them. People don't like make them a priority in the care of 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 people um, who are on certain like supplemental programs. Like I'm, I'm on this program through RSS that, you know, helps me pay my rent essentially, because otherwise I, I wouldn't be able to live on my own because I don't make enough money to pay rent. I think there needs to be a push for more training programs, more like, okay, let's look at this person's skill set and how can we help them to get out of poverty? Instead of just, let's just keep you on poverty, like keep you on poverty wages. Like you shouldn't complain about giving handouts to people when people aren't getting the help they need to move up in society. Like we, we can't do these things on our own. We need other people. So if you're a person that's just completely thrown out into the fray with like no help whatsoever, when you might struggle with a lot of anxiety and, and, I had to stop working at a grocery store because of anxiety. Like, I literally just couldn't handle it because of anxiety. That was what took me out of the working world. And so there's so many factors involved in this that my strategy at the moment is just to believe in myself because... If somebody had taken the time to get to know me and said, wow, you're, you have all these skills. Look, at, look, look what you could do. Look what you could do for the world. Look at the art that you could make. Look at the music you could that make that would change people's lives. And if they had said, you know, I believe in you and we're going to help you. Because everybody, every human being on the planet has a purpose. That's what I believe. But nobody, there was nobody there to do that. There's nobody there. So I was forced to kind of just travel this path all on my own. And, and it's been very difficult. It's been very, very difficult. My strategy towards dealing with this right now is just to believe in myself and say that, 
you know what? Like, I have a bachelor's in art, which could get me a lot of employment. I have a certificate in, in beat making and audio production, which is already starting to get me, get my foot in the door and help, help me eventually get employment in the creative arts. So it's just been a rocky road. It's just been a really rocky road. Elena, thank you so much for sharing with us and coming on to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was Elena Esther Cruz Allen. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Theater director Jay Stoll joins Andrea Cunliffe on Hudson Mohawk Magazine to talk about this interdis- interdisciplinary presentation by Salon Seance called The End of Time, a production of live classical music with visual and theatrical storytelling. On November 19th, an immersive performance of the Quintet for the End of Time by the ensemble Salon Seance. Salon Seance is a group that uses theater and performance to bring the composer and the composition to life. Jay Stahl is the director. Nice to have you with us here on Mohawk Magazine. Welcome. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. A little bit about your life as a theater director. Sure. I've been directing and writing plays for about 10 years in New York. I intersected with Mari Lee, who is the founding producer and performer in Salon Seance. Uh, Shortly after I graduated from my grad program, I've been collaborating with her and, and other artists for about, I guess I would say, three years now on this project much of it during the pandemic, so a lot of Zoom meetings. (laughs) But as of last fall, we have been performing this piece to an in-person audience. So we're excited to bring it to Roy, yes. (laughs) That's so lovely. You're a playwright and a director, so how did you approach this? Well, we worked and collaborated with a playwright, my friend Johnny Lloyd, on a script that was meant to provide insider information about the performers and the composer of the Quartet for the End of Time. And that's what we've been working on. It's being adapted a little bit. So as a director, I was just very interested in how this lived in a room with people, particularly since the conceit of the production has to do with whether we can feel the presence of those not with us anymore. A lot of this derives from Mari's belief that the performers are mediums for the audience, that performers through their nuanced understanding of the music that they perform and the composers who wrote that music, they can channel something more than the sum of the parts of the art. We've done a lot of research in in terms of what mediums do and kind of old fashioned seances. And so I was very interested in a number of different orientations for this and ways of lighting and creating mood and how we experience, and also interrupting how we normally experience chamber music and concert music. There are a couple of different models, but I was also excited about things that people wouldn't normally anticipate experiencing uh, when they went to see a piece of chamber music. Irrespective of the language used and the story that Johnny had beautifully written, both Mari and I were interested in disrupting expectations. That sounds good. I think we're going to give our listeners a bit of information about what this production is about. Sure, yeah. The composer is Olivier Messien. It was completely composed in a prisoner of war camp, not a death camp, but a prisoner of war camp. 
during World War II. And the three other performers were fellow prisoners in the camp. And so the world premiere happened in the winter in this camp and was attended to by all prisoners in the camp because two of the performers were uh, well-known performers in Europe at the time. These prisoners were doing a production because this was allowed them as they were extremely talented musicians during the war, World War II or around that time. So how has the purpose of this composition influenced the way that you looked at it as a production, as a theater production? Well, I mean, it was undoubtedly influenced by the fact that we were generally collaborating on Zoom during a pandemic and a kind of pandemic that none of us had experienced before. The Quartet for the End of Time is in some ways, well, in many ways, a fairly religious uh, quartet. But what Olivier Messiaen was aspiring to do with the music was to break time and time signature. And so he was reaching for a kind of divine sound. The quartet itself has, because of its origins and because of its aspiration to reach past the misery of existence to something eternal and divine. It was something that we just clung to during a very dark time and still cling to during ongoing dark times as a way of listening for, I don't even want to say signals of hope, but just listening for divine sounds that we can hear. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but it seemed extremely appropriate for audiences who have collectively been traumatized by uh, death of family members and friends, near-death experiences themselves, and just disruption to plans and lives that were meaningful and are meaningful. So I think presenting a story about an attempt to listen for divinity and to break time written in circumstances that rival <laughs> the misery that we've all experienced certainly in in many ways uh, exceed it felt like a production worth putting up absolutely you were working with musicians initially on this and did you then have to adapt or have to change or or did you learn something amazing by crossing those those artistic cultures of music and theater is there quite a similarity between the two well, it's always something that Mari and I are very prepared for because the cultures are very different. Mari and the other musicians that we've worked with tour internationally as professional musicians. They're exceptional artists. They train for perfection, and perfection is a crucial part, a crucial first condition to the music that they make in order so that they can express their artistry past that. But I think in theater, the failure is actually <laughs> the medium that we traffic in. What is the surprising, unexpected thing that can happen that opens, um, opens up something that was not anticipated? And so these cultures are actually very different. Where in theater, our rehearsals are oftentimes ways to create failures that give us ideas past expectation. But in traditional concert music, the performers have a certain level of expectation of perfection that they can't deviate from. So we talk about that when we meet and when we rehearse. And I think that generally acknowledges we have two different cultures of preparation. 
And I will say that even though theater traffics in failure, it traffics in the similarities that are held is that it is about repetition and it is about craft. So it's not like we're sitting around just carelessly and lazily doing things, where, mm. but we're crafting different aspects uh, and looking for different goals. That's a conversation that we certainly had, but we've had just the great fortune to work with amazing musicians and amazing theatrical performers in the role of the medium and on an amazing script. So it keeps changing and evolving. We use different performers and different musicians. The script changes sometimes. And so it really is an active search for finding an alive theatrical moment that isn't deadened by um, what we've done in the past. But even as a director early on, you don't really know the shape of the thing. You've done research on it. You've read the script. You've listened to, in this case, the quartet multiple times you've read research on the background of all the performers and the composer, the situation in Europe at the time. It, it really is an open canvas in a way. Most of what I've done in my life in the theater tends to sketch and revise and erase and redraw or draw over all of those lived ghosts of experiences in the rehearsal hall embody and mount on top of one another to create an ultimate performance that has all of those options within it, that has all of the traces of what worked and didn't work within the final performance. And I think that's what makes a performance very rich. I think this is, is a very unique experience working theater in the structure of a concert. The flexibility in a musician when he's creating the music must change or must have certain adaptations. Does that influence Absolutely. Skill? That's where theater and music performance are very similar. In discipline, once you reach a certain level of knowledge, the flexibility that that creates in terms of your artistic expression. I think, I think that's very similar between performers who are actors and then performers who are musicians. What needs to be known cold, like your name is the script that you've read and a number of the things that you've done in terms of research, that, that all must be known so well. And almost so that you don't need to think about it, so that you can play on the surface of having known that. It's like um, the rhythm of an actor is, is quite similar to the rhythm of music. So there's a somehow... great deal of overlap. There's that difference in terms of process of how we exist in the rehearsal room together. But actors and musicians of this caliber approach their work in similar ways in terms of that level of perfection and then the ability to interpret on top of that. This has been Andrea Kamala for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine speaking with Jay Stahl, director for Salon Seance. Thanks to Andrea Cunliffe for that piece. She's overseeing a lot of the organization for Salon Seance, the end of time that is taking place at the sanctuary on November 19th. And there are more event, more uh, interviews on our website, mediasanctuary.org, with some of the people, the many people involved in Salon Seance. And we end our program with Leigh Strimbeck focusing on theater. I'm Lee Strimbeck. I'm a theater person, which means that I'm an actor, a director, a writer, and uh, I have taught theater for many years in the Capital Region and elsewhere. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Good to have you back to talk about so many things that go on in the theater world. Last month, you talked about access to theater and some barriers to it. What's on your mind this month? Uh, this month, I've been thinking about a, a relatively newer movement in theater 
which is intimacy choreography. And uh, what is that? Well, it's similar to fight choreography. Fight choreographers have been around in theater for, for quite a long time, and they're the ones who stage any violence that you see at all uh, in the theater. And also, there are fight choreographers and stunt people who work in film and television. But there has never been until, and I think it's about five years old, it could be that the movement started a little before that, um, an idea that someone actually trains to stage all intimate scenes. Intimate scenes would be anything between two people um, that involve sexuality or uh, also scenes of sexual assault. If you watch television and film, you realize those scenes are quite common. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's, you know, in a way, there's more sex in TV and film than there is in theater. In some ways, in theater, it's more intense because it's you're seeing live actors in front of you do it, which is not to say that actors ever have full-on sex in the theater. They don't. It's a staged event. The difference with intimacy choreography and intimacy directors is that they break down the moment of let's just sit, t take a kiss. There's as we all delightfully know, a million ways for people to kiss each other. So it depends upon the characters, why they're kissing, where they're kissing, first kiss, last kiss, all those things. And instead of just having the actors work it out, uh, the, the, the choreographer will come in and break down that moment with them touch for touch. What that does is it makes it much safer for the actors because Otherwise, you're just assuming that two people are going to fling themselves at each other physically and that they're both they both feel completely safe and comfortable doing that. Also, if you're doing a, a run of a show, you might have to do that scene over and over and over again. If you've choreographed it, then it's not going to change. But mm -hmm. if you haven't choreographed it, then one actor might move their hand a little lower or a little higher and that would change comfort and safety. And then what does the other actor do? Who do they talk to, right? It's relatively new, but theaters that can afford them are hiring intimacy directors more commonly now. And colleges too, actually, which is really cool. A lot of colleges are hiring intimacy directors when they're staging stuff. And as a person who's directed college shows, I'm all for it because I was in the position as a director of having to stage intimacy myself. And, um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a big responsibility. Um, how direct is this correlation to the Me Too movement? That you know, that would be a great thing for for me to try to to go back on. I, I I'm pretty sure it started, and I wish I could name. The, the, there was a, a, a I think two women who started who actually developed the first training for it in the country. I think it started before the Me Too movement happened, and the two things came together beautifully at just the right time. Um, and so then, both were reactions to just culture, right? I mean, Me Too came out of the need for a movement, right? And the intimacy choreography came out of the need for safety on stage, sounds like. Yeah, and the Me Too movement came out of uh, women who hadn't been able to speak up for so long because of power imbalances. Uh, and pow power imbalances in life, power imbalances in the workplace. Uh, too many, usually men in charge, you know, like 98% of the time, who um, were sort of routinely abusive or crossing boundaries, and you can't speak up because you're not paid enough, because you need the job, because you don't know where your next job's coming from. And I think the force of all these women coming together and saying, me too, 
And uh, I'm so bad at names, but that original tag of Me Too came from a woman who I think Tatiana. Thank you. Um, and so, it, you know, it circles back to her. She was the first one, but, but, but it took off, but then it took off. So yes, I think, I think they became connected uh, in, a, in, a, in a wonderful way in terms of uh, people's safety when they're working. Hmm. So you mentioned the affordability, being able to afford an intimacy choreographer. So is it still, is, is safety a privilege in these Oh, what a great question. I mean, I think it, I think the answer is yes. Um, because it's even a privilege to be the person. First of all, it's a privilege to have enough money, you know, mon money and privilege go together. So to have the extra money, I mean, theaters, theaters are so we work on just such little budgets all the time. I mean, I know there are exceptions, but um, there's an awful lot of, you know, just just barely being able to put a show up. Um, and then it's also safety for somebody in the room to speak up and say, oh, this play needs an intimacy choreographer. Like we're not we can, we're I don't want to hire actors to do that without this. Again, fight choreographers are almost they're taken for granted. You have people swinging swords or holding guns or choking people or punching people in the face, you know, appearing to punch people in the face, you got a fight choreographer. Sometimes you hire an actor who's had fight choreography training and they are in the show and they, they are the fight choreographer. So I think, I hope that in the future, intimacy choreographer, choreography will, will, will be the same way. There'll be someone in the cast who has done the training, who can help, um, who can help choreograph. If there is a low-budget production out there who wants to create spaces for safety but can't afford an intimacy choreographer, what are some ways that they can use the ideas of an intimacy choreographer without uh, on a shoestring budget? I think that, uh, well, first of all, you should try to reach out and see if anybody who's trained in intimacy choreography will work with you uh, either pro bono or for a stipend. Um, and then second of all, you could just, I mean, and you should do this anyway. You should sit the whole cast down and say, okay, when we get to scene five, there's the scene where he pushes her up against a wall, she pushes him away. So that's both, that could be both a, a sex and a fight thing or an assault, sexual assault and a fight. Here's how we're gonna do it. We're not gonna get to, we're not gonna uh, actually have any physical contact until we break it down is every does that sound right to everybody so just know when we get to that scene nobody's nobody's touching anybody so that you you start with communication with your cast you mentioned power dynamics before if the director or it, if the most powerful people in a production aren't thinking this way right. is it just a lost cause is, is it not going to happen and is it well, I, you know, I think point it's of really tricky because I think if you have a young person, you know, the directors usually are the ones who've hired you. And so you feel beholden to them. And if it's a young person, uh, you know, he, she, they might not feel comfortable saying, I know there's a scene where we make out, but I have questions. Uh, I, I, I need to, to really be clear on what's happening with this scene. I don't want to just have somebody because I have, you know, been in the theater over 40 years and there are definitely shows where, you know, you, you're just supposed to kiss each other and then somebody's kissing you and you're like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. Um, 
and it's so much better when you when you can use your voice so if somebody is unvoiced in the room that's a terrible situation and as an as a person who's now much to my surprise sometimes the oldest actor in the room <laughs> all of a sudden um i feel like i i want to encourage other older actors to keep an eye on um younger actors in this situation and be the voice for them oh this was a wonderful insight into theater and um looking forward to having you back next month it's been I'm looking forward to it too it's been wonderful to speak to you lee strimbeck all right nice to see you Lee Strimbeck is in The Lion in Winter at the Bridge Street Theater in Catskill from November 10th to 20th. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can find her website at Lee, that's L-E-I-G-H, Strimbeck.com. And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Jacob Boston. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Andrea Cunliffe, Dulcinea Diggs, Mark Dunley, and my co-host, Jacob Boston. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We hope you have a fun and safe Halloween, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening.